You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Because we're such a beautiful, intimate group, we're going we're gonna to have time and opportunity to introduce ourselves to each other. And so we'd love to hear your story too. And it's also a nice, it's a nice protocol as well, which I'm sure if you've actually been <laughs> with Sarah <laughs> in her class, or, um, it's, it's a nice protocol that she um, observes in her classes as well. So I'll introduce myself, and I'm not going to use my official UQ academic one. I'm going to start with what we always start with is our language group and where we're from. So I'm a Jitable, uh Gumbelbara lady, and my original, um, my country, through my grandmother and grandfather, is in North Queensland. So if you know Cairns, Cairns is a good sort of nice locale but that's not actually my country it's actually south of Cairns down to a little place and it and in my area traditional country is always based on the river system so where the rivers flow from the mountains to the sea and so Tully River the Herbert Rivers are very very important sort of places um, from from uh, where my grandmother and grandfather are from. So, and I also work at UQ. I teach in the School of Architecture. I'm also a researcher. And um, I'd like to sort of make reference to the publication that I brought along today as a gift to Sarah, which I'm going to sort of take back off her. (laughs) Um, um, But it's something that just really explains a nice process and a way of working um, and and perhaps what we'd like to sort of um, really introduce uh, to students as a method to carry forward into practice if and when the opportunity arrives. And and I think that's the really challenging thing. But today was also going to be about questions that you're too afraid to ask. And I think that's a really important thing because you hear Indigenous people talking about cultural safety. Um, But also it needs to be, there's psychological safety for students too, to be able to ask dumb questions, to feel like you have an opportunity to be candid um, and not sort of feel like you always have to be knowledgeable um, and hold back. And so it's an opportunity to do that without feeling like you have to filter, dodge around, tread on eggshells. Um, and, and I think that, and, and I'm terribly open to that, and so is Danielle, and I'm sure Sarah is. So that's what we want to invite you to do as well. So I'll um, hand it over to Danielle to introduce herself. Thanks, Carol. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I'm Danielle Hromek and um, my uh, mob are the Butterwang, or some people say Budawang, depending on which elder you're talking to. 
and you get told off by the other one if you say it in the wrong way that they don't like. Um, and we are now part of the UN nation. Um, we're Duraga speakers, or some people say Duraja, or depending on, again, who you speak to. Um, so that would be, I guess, our subgroup as well, um, our language group. I'm still learning my language um, after not our, my ancestors, ancestors weren't allowed to speak it. Um, that was forcibly removed from my family. Uh, so I can say some words, but not many. And I can say Walawani, <laughs> Walawani Jindawan, which means um, safe travels, everybody. And you can say that at the beginning and in the end of things. <gasps> Come and join us. There's a seat right there. <laughs> Um, so I, I, um, I'm related to a lot of the East Coast mobs in New South Wales um, on the coastal areas. So my family were dispossessed of country like about 250, 200, 200 years ago, sorry, 180 years ago. And, um, and we moved up the coast, probably following a familiar travelling path, we think, because our, we've got lots of relatives up there historically and even now. So... We, um, and we ended up in the mid-north coast of New South Wales and that's where we've sort of been around there and up to the far north coast where I also grew up. Come in and join us, get a seat. Yep. We're making a raggedy circle. <laughs> um, and uh, so I'm, I have my own practice called Jinjama. Jinjama means to create or make something in my language. Um, it's not a complete word, which I do know, and I, re I reflect that as being not a complete word because I'm not completely able to speak my language. Um, uh, we do all sorts of built environment projects from quite small all the way up to... Um, quite small art projects all the way up to massive precinct planning. And um, we're also trying to do work around uh, planning with mob for country. Um, so that means getting them ready for when all these big projects come. They already know what they need to know and have already organised themselves. So we're doing... We're really little still, though. Um, but, yeah, that's the sort of work we do. But I also work with Sydney Uni um, one day a week. They uh, made me a professor of practice. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm allowed to do that because I'm quite shocked by the idea that, uh, myself. Um, but I'm working on their curriculum... Uh, on a project to tie together the curriculum with the strategies, the Indigenous strategies that are across the university with also the work that the inst uh, Institute, the Architect Institute of Architecture is doing um, around the new um, proficiencies and um, performance criteria and to basically try and find a way to help um, students be ready for what they're going to come, ag come up against pretty soon. But also staff to get ready to teach that stuff. Thank you. I'm feeling really privileged to be part of this panel today as a non-Aboriginal um, woman. And thank you to Sarah for inviting me to, uh, to speak. I'm Sky Haldane. I'm a non-Aboriginal woman. Um, I was born on um, Nahu and Bangala country in South Australia on the Eyre Peninsula and have lived in Melbourne um, on Bunurong and Boonurong um, land just south of the city um, for most of my adult life. I guess I'm a landscape architect and studied in Melbourne and through my education at RMIT had the opportunity to, to work with a number of practitioners who 
were starting to engage with some of the Victorian Aboriginal groups at the time. And I think that was my first lens into thinking about country as, I guess, really the medium that landscape architects are practising with. And then through my profession, um, since I've had the opportunity to work with Aboriginal people, um, to travel and be with Aboriginal people on their country and, I guess, just continuously learn um, for myself what kind of role can I have um, as a non-Aboriginal person to be an enabler, um, but what's also the learning that I need to do and to do with others as well. And I believe for the last six years I've been part of Ayla's reconciliation journey, setting up um, a process for a wrap and part of the um, Connection to Country Committee currently in Victoria as well. So, yeah, really keen to contribute what I can to the conversation today and obviously learn a lot more, I'm sure, from all of you. Great. Um, and could we just briefly, uh, could we use one of the mics? Is that okay if we yeah. use your mic, Sky, and we'll do a big circle around and just introduce... Oh, do we have to spray the mics? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Oh, okay. I'm Ella. Um, I'm from Lat 37, and I'm an urban designer. Um, I'm from Nam. I've lived here for the last few years, and yeah. Great. Welcome, Ella. Great. Um, I'm Jess Stewart, um, and I was um, born in. England um, in Yorkshire. Um, my parents came over when they were um, when I was two, and um, I've lived in um, in Melbourne on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung country, and work um, there for most of my life. Um, and yeah, my um, family came over originally. My mum's family came over from Poland, you know, about forty years ago, and my dad's family came over um, from Ireland in the 1800s um, and they sort of flitted around for a bit but settled on Gunditjmara country um, and yeah that's me. <laughs> I'm Justine Clark, I'm um, uh, Pakiha from Aotearoa, New Zealand, I've lived in Australia for a long time now on Bunurong country um, and I'm a co-director and co-founder of Parla and uh, sometime collaborator with these lovely women. <laughs> Hi, my name is Kwali, and you've seen me on Zoom <laughs> a couple of years. <laughs> um, I was born in Zimbabwe um, and came to Nam as a teenager. Um, uh, lived on Wurundjeri country, and then I moved to, uh, New York, to, to New York, and I've been living on Mansi Lenape country. Lived in, on Gadigal country for a while, two years in, um, in Sydney. And I'm just back home for an exhibit, which a lot of you are in, <laughs> featured in, called Say It Loud. Um, yeah, eager to learn. And I'm also going back to be a student uh, in Cambridge, in Massachusetts, um, in the next three, four or five months. So excited to, and my research is going to be really focused on um, engaging with indigenous knowledge systems and respectfully in the practice of architecture. <laughs> uh, hello everybody, my name is Billy um, I decided to 
uh, attend this session um, somewhat spur of the moment. As you can see, I've just come from the gym. Um, so you'll forgive me if I don't have any questions uh, pre prepared. Um, but yeah, mostly I'm here to be a sponge and learn and I was expecting to take a more passive role, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> happy, to, happy to do that uh, actively. Hi, I'm uh, Jordan Kaufman. Um, I'm from Boston. Um, uh, uh, I guess it's Massachusetts country. Um, but um, I moved to Melbourne about three years ago. Um, but I work uh, quite a bit on uh, Native American um, and it, Indigenous American uh, architecture and knowledge systems. So. Hello, um, I'm Kate Goodwin. I'm um, down on, from Gadigal country. I'm also a prof prac at Sydney Uni and I've been trying to meet up with Danielle. And it's, on, it's great because we've been trying to meet up on a Monday and we come to Melbourne to meet up on a Monday. Um, I was Only work day. That's right. <laughs> I was equally surprised to be made a professor of practice at Sydney because I'm a curator um, and was over in London and have ended up back here you know, as all things do, upside, world upside down with COVID. So it's great to be here and thank you for creating this space for us all. Hi, I'm Sam. I'm, uh, <laughs> I work here as a sound engineer. <laughs> um, yeah, one, two, one, two, two. <laughs> hey everybody, my name's Matt and I completed a project in my mother's country town in Wiradjuri country in central New South Wales over 2011 and 12 with the local Wiradjuri elders mm. uh, recording the histories and that led to me doing a PhD on the Aboriginal flag which I completed in 2017 and that's going to come out as a book if I ever get around to finishing it off <laughs> hopefully pretty soon. Hello, uh, my name is Jen Zielinska. Uh I'm the creative director at M Pavilion. I grew up in London, also in an Irish-Polish family, um, and have lived here six years to the day nearly. Um, and I've been working with Sarah on Black Architecture since 2018. Yeah, well, I joined the year after. Um, and we've been... It's been a real privilege to work on this project and learn as much as I have. And um, this year in particular was really interesting because I think we found that when we were doing black texture sessions with a talk per month, it was really great. But actually we were thinking about how kind of condensifying these three days of talks into this session meant that actually we could have much more um, contact and engagement and discussion and, and keep it up. And so... I'm really excited to see where the manifesto goes and um, look forward to hearing all the ideas and kind of conversation that gets generated. Thanks, Jen. Um, I'm Sarah Lynn Reese. I've had the pleasure of curating the Black Architecture series for the last five years, I think. This is the fifth annual, yeah, it's the fifth, the five years. Um, and um, hosting my lovely, lovely friends from all across Australia uh, to come and have big yarns about what architecture and Indigenous architecture and indigeneity in architecture means. And I'm a Palawa, Trawai, Plangamarina woman. Should have started with that. I got off track. Okay. Um, so, as I said, it was about 
feeling free to ask questions that uh, you may have thought about and were too afraid to ask. So um, would anyone like to ask a question? <laughs> Funnily enough, I have one. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'm um, so glad. Um, Good on is you. Is it still on? Yeah. Um, I... I I have to preface this by saying, excuse my ignorance. Um, uh, but I noticed, thank you, I noticed that um, this was subtitled Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Design Framework. And I thought that it was politically incorrect to say Aboriginal. So I've always, I've been for, mm. for many years now been correcting myself and saying Indigenous Australian. So I was just wondering what's the right thing to do in what context or, yep. That's uh, that's a really great question to kick off with. Um, so I guess, uh, as you know, if you know the history of Australia, Indigenous people weren't really called Indigenous or um, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander initially. Um, and um, both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, were sort of considered um, gen you know, a way to a way to identify the collective, right? Um, and it, and they were colonising terms, which um, replaced natives. <laughs> so originally, every, every you know, all indigenous people were referred to as natives, and then uh, there's a whole sort of cascade of really quite derogatory terms that stem from that and some are very particular to regions and some are almost generic all over Australia and so Aboriginal um, became something that to identify the collective because there was no um, identification and particularly particularly um, for example in my region where I'm from uh, durable people didn't really identify themselves by the language that they spoke. But people, when you talk to the old people in my area, uh, they always refer to um, the tongue that they speak as the mother tongue. And from that, there are all these other, other tongues or dialects that come from that. So people didn't sort of go, uh, they didn't have the need to identify each other within obviously a region where what your traditional country was, but it was your language and your and your um, dialect that identified you as soon as you spoke, because everyone could tell as soon as you opened your mouth. Oh, you're Mamu. You're a Mamu um, person. Um, so I think that that was a challenge. Um, so sort of in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people adopted those terms, and I think that now. Um, Torres Strait Islanders are trying to use something that they identify as a collective that is not really identified with the coloniser. So they're calling themselves Xenodiths people, which is a made-up anacronym <laughs> um, from, uh, by some Torres Strait Islander elders, which has had some sort of um, currency. At UQ, the interesting thing is Indigenous is out of vogue. <laughs> it was, and that became the replacer for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. But because both groups see themselves quite distinctively culturally um, and, and with subgroups, uh, Indigenous came into vogue as a replacer, right? Uh, but in some instances, Torres Strait Islander people were quite sort of um, 
felt like that they were left out because they their statistics was sort of being um, included with all Aboriginal people, which they see themselves as culturally distinct, even though most Torres Strait Islanders or people who emerge from the sort of archipelago of the Torres Strait live on mainland Australia and the least number live in the islands. So it's sort of, it, it really is about sort of things that come in vogue, out of vogue, but also that challenge of really trying to find a general, uh, an identifier that refers to collectively um, because, you know, to as you know, um, Indigenous Australia perhaps has um, hundreds of, of language groups, but traditionally in my area, um, the old people say language was never an identifier, it was what you spoke. So people would refer to themselves from their ancestral country um, for which you were a traditional owner and you had traditional owner rights, which for me, it's Gumbelbara people. So, um, so it just becomes, and then you become, and then you talk to your clan and then your totem and, and so forth. So there's a whole different identifying system, which you can imagine is quite complex and maybe really beautifully illustrated just by haphazard actually with the way that I approach this by how we introduced ourselves. So you can imagine if we had to do that and you had a room of 50 Indigenous people would be here and the entire session would be taken up with that. So there are sort of shorthand conveniences which come in vogue and out of vogue and I think um, at the moment UQ and the Indigenous people at UQ really don't feel like Indigenous is something that applies. They're not offended by the use of it. Actually, they use it as a shorthand as well. It's just something as a way of distinguishing when you have somewhere like Queensland, I think it maybe applies in a place to different parts of Australia where you have a really large Torres Strait Islander population as well. Um, but not all Torres Strait Islander people use that term Zenedeth either. So it is a, it's, it's like a, a really perhaps a good illustration of navigating um, the Indigenous world and, um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to add a little bit. Um, it's... it's um, I had to think about this quite strongly in my PhD because knowing exactly what Carol was just saying, that things come in and out of fashion with terms and um, what I... Um, I kind of came around to, uh, well, I asked a lot of people actually as well to, to come to this, but like some elders didn't like the word Indigenous. I didn't like the word Indigenous, the term Indigenous Australia personally, because I find that I don't identify always as being Australian, only in specific moments, which is complex. My, I don't know about you, Carol and Sarah, but my identity is really complex. And I, like Carol said, I could, we have been in sessions where the whole session's just been about introducing each other to each other. Mm -hmm. And the point of going to that session was missed because we actually just needed to do that introductory business. Um, and, and that was fine. And we had the rest of the session at another time because we needed that identification stuff was really important. So my identity is really complex. I also have French and Czech. And just when you put all of that stuff in together, it becomes a really complex mix. Um, but I didn't identify always as being Australian, so I didn't want to call 
Indigenous Australia and I um, find that a bit funny because I think there's a lot of Indigenous people who don't always identify as being Australian. Um, but it is quite long to write Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. It's also offensive to write ATSI. And so I decided on First Peoples and First Nations um, as a reflection of, um, of, the, uh, of who we are. There was First People here and the First Nations here. Now, the Nations thing is a complex thing as well um, because that's probably a relatively recent addition. Would you agree? Mm. Um, I don't think that we used to walk around saying I'm a proud Butterwang Yuan woman. I don't think we needed to. Um, but we've had to, in more recent times, identify ourselves through those identifiers in order that we don't have to be Aboriginal or Torres, or Torres Strait Islander or Indigenous or any of those. And we've had to, uh, we've had to actually say, no, I am a... Um, because that's how you guys understand us. Mm. But I don't... Um, when I was saying earlier, um, my, the tongue that we spoke was Duruga, that's probably how we were identified because we spoke dialects of and different um, ways of speaking Duruga. And same with in the Sydney area, there's, there's an, a few dialects and there's arguments now about what that's called. Probably we never had those discussions about what it was called because we didn't need to. Mm. And so that's why there's arguments now. And also because white governments came along and gave us things like Indigenous, like um, Eora, like <laughs> whatever. Um, and Eora, just to be clear, Eora means people. And so it didn't, it, and so does you, and it means man. And so we probably, I probably would never have identified as man as in the past times. So quite probably that's a fairly relatively recent addition. I, I accept it. I also accept Indigenous because I don't mind identifying as that. I don't like Indigenous Australia though. Mm. So you tell me. <laughs> it's a really complex conversation. Yeah. yeah. The best. Yeah. The best way for a non-Indigenous person... I'll just repeat the question. The best way for a non-Indigenous person is to just say, how do you identify? Yeah. Or what, what's the best way for me to speak with... Uh, to um, reference your identity? Because most of us have got it sorted out. Mm. Um, or if we don't know, we'll say that too. Because mm. there are some people who, through stolen generation, don't know. Mm. And so they just do identify as Aboriginal because they know they have heritage and they have some, they have some story but they don't know where that story began. That was a really good point about First Nations, so I forgot the most recent iteration. Yeah. <laughs> and watch the space. Um, yeah, I think the, the First Nations thing, as we know, um, maybe you know, comes from Canada and... Um, and the US and and there was some there is some resistance amongst indigenous people so this I this I think this just perhaps shows the complexity of there are some pe indigenous people that accept those terms they um, and then or identifiers and then some that resist it and and in in some and and it depends on what your role and your 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 leadership capacity is. Like sort of at UQ currently, the Indigenous leadership, which are amazing and fantastic, they're 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 they're, fi they're finding that challenging in a, in an in a university administrative space to navigate that because. Um, a lot of people from other First Nations who are outside of Australia and the Torres Strait um, then see that they're eligible to to identify as First Nations. So they're just trying, they're finding that apart, that quite hard from an administrative point of view, but I don't think that sort of, you know, um, 
you know, precludes it from 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 someone uh, using that as a general uh, a general identifier. And so there's, I, there's that yeah. same thing with black. So that's why yeah. we often spell black with just a K and no C to reference. Same thing, um, almost, but mm. that the people who are from overseas don't like us saying black. Because we... Yeah, yeah. Kelly and I were having had a conversation about BIPOC and I said if you hadn't, with the exhibition and I said if you had any pushback on that because I've seen pushback about that and he went, what's the pushback? And I couldn't quite remember. <laughs> so I <laughs> but I think it was about, in, in, um, from what I recall from a Twitter thread, <laughs> some, you know, about kind of being bundled up into this larger group. So I wondered if you have anything to say about BIPOC as a term. Uh, What's you know, BIPOC, black, black indigenous, indigenous people of people color. of color. Oh, you know, so it's the right. total umbrella right, term. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it. I think it is that something that's coming from the states as well, <laughs> um, because I know I noticed. Um, when I'm watching lots of YouTube <laughs> and um, um, Black Americans are talking, they yeah they use people of colour, um, and but that also refers to anyone of colour, not necessarily just yeah. a, you know yeah. people who have um, African American heritage. So um, yeah, so BIPOC, um, <laughs> that's a new one. So um, yeah, so I think. I, I don't know um, if that has a lot of currency in Australia, but um, I think it does in certain contexts, maybe in arts. I know like, like the big LAK came from an artist, a really prominent Indigenous artist who was using that um, and using exploring identity in art. And it's sort of something that had a lot of currency because it was um, based on... Um, I think it was Deacon Destiny. Uh, it was work based on identity and really, um, and it was in the 80s, you know, really strong sort of theme through her work. Um, and so it's something that then um, had, had a lot of currency in the art space and then has sort of filtered into architecture. Um, so, yeah, so I'm not quite sure um, about... BIPOC. Um, I don't think I'm offended really by anything. Um, um, even, <laughs> even, I think, I think if there's a collective agreement or just an individual who wants to choose that, I would not, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't question it. I think it's, I think um, the less rigid our rules are, <laughs> the more we allow for creating new things, you know, and we're open to sort of new evolutions of uh, things and I think it you know there's a lot of social change that that drives that I think um, you know and it and it's things that work in particular spaces maybe not so much in in administrative spaces let's say um, but I did want to just talk about two native which I thought was a because uh, uh, you know I find it quite interesting that that's, that still has a lot of currency in the U.S., but in Australia it's in, in, yeah, considered incredibly offensive, um, despite the fact that they have similar origins, you know. Um, so, so 
um, because the original um, department, government departments, were called the Department of, of Native Affairs, and then that turned into um, Department of Aboriginal Affairs, Aboriginal Protection. Um, Torres Strait Islanders didn't even prefigure. They were considered Aboriginal. Um, and then it probably wasn't until um, a little later that they became identified by... Um, the explorer of the of of their archipelago, you know. So, and then, um, and I think it it really depends on um, who is speaking within um, to that, because I think as Indigenous people were became more politically aware and more politically savvy, they realised that those those terms were. Um, associated with means of control and the way governments work and, you know, and operated uh, with Aboriginal people. And when I grew up in North Queensland, um, the Department of Aboriginal and Islander Affairs was the Queensland entity. And, um, and, and, the, and it sort of came associated with very much, um, you know, uh, a paternalistic you know, uh, notions of control, containment and um, of Indigenous populations and peoples and, and access to resources. So, and there's, there's my um, older generation who actually have no awareness of that because of their limited education. And so, um, but we talk about it, we've talked about it and, um, and old, old people just think, oh, well, that's something that white people need to do to have some sort of control over them, but they're not necessarily offended by it because their identity is strong, you know, so they see what's, what is more important is what we call ourselves and how we identify and, you know, those names, as they have seen over time, change uh, within government. So I think it's, you know, people take different positions and um, and so it's a great sort of uh, question to start with. Thank you so much. Um, do I might just add to that. I think for mm. my own approach in showing respect is firstly asking the individual that I'm speaking to how they would like to be um, referred to. And then also a number of organisations that I've worked with and currently work at the City of Melbourne, um, they've done quite a bit of work with the traditional owner stakeholders that they engage with all the time to establish some clear protocols so that our whole organisation knows how to communicate respectfully, how to refer to those groups in the way that they would prefer. So there's usually some good information out there if you're acting on behalf of an organisation um, to find out what, what that agreed protocol um, might be as well. Mm. Great. Any other questions? Yes, Kali. Sorry, I have a question. It's not very well formulated in my mind. <laughs> so, so please bear with me. Um, I guess beginning to understand more the way, well, trying to understand the way indi indigeneity plays out in an Australian context, it seems we have this asset of diversity. And it doesn't quite work in a Western context because we've sort of seen the way to sort of move things forward as minorities has been to band together and, and sort of, make these common causes, but it doesn't quite work when 
and I'm speaking more from an architectural perspective. To me, in my mind, this could be incorrect. It doesn't quite work when you have this diversity, which you probably need to be engaging to allow for the full the fullness of expression of each individual in the way that it plays out in the built environment. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, I'm really confused about how to deal with that because mm-hmm. I'm sort of like doing all this research on it and I'm realizing that that perhaps the way we think about it is all completely wrong. You can't advocate in the way that we're advocating. Mm. And I just don't even know how to... I'm wondering what your thoughts are and the work that you do and how you sort of... Sorry, it's long-winded and I don't have it fully <laughs> together. I have some thoughts. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, yeah. Um, Great question. It is a really good question. Um, I'm, I'm going to reference one of my elders um, who I work with a lot in Sydney and call we call each other a lot um, to talk about these sort of questions. And she... Uh, her name is Jacinta Tobin, just to acknowledge her, uh, says yes and yes. So by which, yes, yes and yes even. <laughs> so what, by which she, I, the way that I understand that is, is about um, including the diversity. And if somebody it needs to be um, expressing something like this, that's yes. And then somebody else needs to express it like this, that's yes. And again, yes to the next person who expresses it differently. And all of it has a place. And it doesn't mean that yet one has to be right or wrong because if we genuinely believe that um, we are diverse, which I think we do as, as First Nations or First People or whatever you want to call us, um, then we have to believe that we all have multiple stories and we all have multiple beginnings and we all have multiple ways of seeing through the world. And so the yet, that's how I, I actually have adopted the yes, yes and yes approach. Um, and even when people are sitting in front of me saying opposite things, I'm saying yes and yes. It doesn't make it always easy, I won't lie, um, because I am having to try and include all of these ways of seeing the world in one thing, usually. But that doesn't always... It's not always the case. Often you can recognise multiplicity in things, actually much easier than you think. It's just the one thing might be one building or one space or one... But actually, within that space, there are multiple spaces and, or multiple voices or multiple iterations or multiple whatever it is. And so I, I think it's about... For me, at least, maybe I've understood the question a bit wrong, but um, for me, at least, the, that approach of yes, yes and yes means that I'm able to um, just just agree and be yes, be in that that space with that person at that moment and be in the next space with the next person without needing to argue with them because they're both right because they have that diverse, diverse, diversity of, 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 of expression. I don't know. <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking if I could answer your question, just approaching it from how I did campuses on countries. Um, so I was in a team of four uh, women, um, myself as a lead, Kelly Greenop. Um, from the University of Queensland. We were the two senior leads. And then we had um, Teresa Bauer, who is a graduate, uh, Indigenous graduate, uh, with a th- the first three years as a bachelor in, in, in architecture. And, and then also Carly Marnane, um, who was in, at that time completing her PhD and the only architect, I might say, registered architect on the team. Um, not that her architectural skills were greatly needed, um, 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 but, but, but she was an amazing, she was, uh, uh, you know, it was an incredibly dynamic team. 
But initially, um, I think the, the quite interesting thing is, and I think it answers your question, I hope it do, I don't take a long time to do this and I'll try and get to the point, but the University of Queensland, like a lot of universities, they, they have a, a huge amount of assets and they procure an incredible amount of building um, worth hundreds of millions of dollars really a year. And, and like um, others, similar sandstone universities of, that are larger in size, they are in the like, likewise this very similar position. And so UQ, um, as a part of its wrap, decided that it really needed to seriously engage with how its campuses were, in, were designed. They didn't know how to do it and they took a very, very long time going into a huge circle before they arrived at us <laughs> as the team. And, and we essentially um, uh, wrote, wrote the brief for our work. And as a part of our... And because they could, took such a long time to do this, they then wanted to... Um, shorten our time to actually do the project. Isn't that, uh, is that something that you come across in, in architecture? Um, and so, so after they took uh, um, over 12 months to decide on who they were going to get to lead this project and who was appropriate and blah, blah, blah um, and looked at external consultants and some other internal people. Um, so our, we were given six months to... Um, um, to basically get something out, a document that looked like our competitor universities. And I was like really not happy with doing something like that because first of all, I disagreed with the process. Um, a lot of it was actually done by non-Indigenous people um, without talking to a single Indigenous person or it was an Indigenous leadership that oversaw a group by a set of design professionals, invisible design professionals um, and contributors who were not acknowledged but came under a sort of a, a university label. And I think that, that can happen in architecture as well. So that's why it has relevance. Um, and so what, we, what I argued for we said what we would like to do is actually consult with Indigenous staff and students on the campus um, as well as, and we knew that there were some who were traditional owners and at that time simultaneously there was a huge tension with traditional owners in Brisbane and it had flared up and, and, and centred on the campus. And so it was a really challenging sort of thing to navigate. Um, so we decided to leave the the negotiation and, and dealing with the traditional owners with the, the Indigenous leadership um, because we thought that would distract us from actually our very tight time frame. But we wanted to argue for this time to consult and to hear different voices, you know, because we were quite aware of the diversity of the Indigenous staff and students, but also traditional owners, and some who are not just traditional owners of Yagara country, but they have multiple affiliations with country as a, as a process and a consequence of colonisation. And so, um, so we wanted to hear their voices. And so originally, um, we were told no, you're not allowed to do, we can't, we haven't got any time, you've got to get this out, you know, we're already behind schedule. And I said, yeah, but it's not our fault that you're behind schedule. <laughs> um, so we just, 
pretended that we were going to do what they were saying and we blew out the time frame for consultation. So essentially, um, and, and so, and, it, and it's really weird how these sorts of things happen because you have essentially people who operate like project managers who are watching you to see if you're meeting your, you know, time frames and deadlines and deliveries. Um, and you actually have no dialogue with anyone who actually has power above them to negotiate that. So I just pretended that we were going along with them. And then as we were getting this amazing um, information and consultation process and collectively gathering that um, and designing it, uh, we were feeding back information to our project control group about all the wonderful stuff that we were getting. And so that sort of bought us the time. But we had pressure from both Indigenous uh, leadership on that as well as the university because they were really... I mean, it's very... Sometimes you become very product-focused. And I think this happens in architecture. So what happens in architecture in terms of the projects that I have been involved in and asked to be involved in is exactly the same thing. And it's very easy to centre that process on a single Indigenous person and voice, which is a very non-Indigenous way to actually do a project. And that creates an incredible amount of tension. Um, but it also... There is... I would say that we need to have a much more nuanced approach. I don't think every project can be like our campuses on countries where we talk to 52 Indigenous diverse voices um, and then get this really quite diverse view. And, and because that took us, that took us essentially um, four or five months to do that, right? And so we blew out our our, our four-week time frame that we were given because we knew that was absolutely impossible. Um, but now everybody takes ownership of that <laughs> um, because they can see the richness that actually came out of not only people talking about their own experiences from their own countries and what they had experienced, but people talking about their life experiences and their work histories about, and their interactions with other spaces and built and design spaces, but also their reaction to the design spaces and the representation of campus. And surprisingly, if you look around Australia, there are very few spaces that you can see the Indigenous voice, even the voice of the traditional owner. So I'm a huge advocate for that. I would, I always will push for it. I don't think we, I don't think it suits every single project. Australia has $360 billion of building and construction. Is it feasible to do that on every single project? Absolutely no, is, is my, you know, you know, realistically, but can we actually have some amazing examples of where public spaces, where we not only consult with Indigenous people, but we have diverse voices in terms of what is the community that we have um, included in that process. And I think the really strange thing is that UQ, like a lot of large institutions, procures its buildings and actually it's, they consider it's much more efficient not to talk to staff students about any of their buildings and they don't. So that's quite interesting because it becomes a senior management team in a school or in a faculty or in an institute that you engage with 
And then we get all this feedback from the users about how inappropriate some spaces are, how amazing some are, how they don't work. It's just the weirdest waste of resources if you actually don't engage with people to find out how the users... Um, what they would like to see and experience in the building and somehow that just filters around. And, and you know, I've experienced that in our own school where um, staff and students uh, and in particular staff were excluded from the upgrades, the renovations, and it, and it became a, a select sort of voices of few. And we're now actually retrofitting and spending more money to actually fix up the spaces that don't work. If this is the path forward for architecture, I would really, it's, we, we've got a, we've got a, um, we really need to, we need to really approach it like we're designing someone's house, you know, in the sense that you personalise some aspects of it. Some are actually, um, you know, uh, you know, visionary and they really, you know, they have something that, that connects to, to the people and those people come and go. But if it connects to human beings rather than an architectural vision, and it, um, then I think we'll be designing greater spaces. And, and, you know, some of the comments that we received from staff were just so amazing. A lot of them are non-designers and it's like people know what they expect of space. And they know what makes them feel uncomfortable and what they feel, what feels welcoming and what feels, um, and what things they want to support through architecture, whether it's, you know, um, environmental design, uh, um, connection to nature. I think really, I, I just find that it just never ceases to astound me how little, consul how consultation is down or actually thrown out of a process, but getting the technical and the, you know, the design side of it is so much more important and it makes it much better if we don't have to talk to any human being. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's a weird thing. But, um, and I, I think, I don't know, I'd like to hear what Danielle and Sky say. It does that occur in landscape architecture? Yes, I guess, yeah, we deal with very complex projects in the city and there's a lot of, um, I think, desire to create efficiencies in the delivery of those projects through not inviting more complexity by hearing, you know, from more and more voices in the community. I know that our perspectives towards that are continuously changing and lots of local governments are getting much better at um, designing better and more inclusive engagement processes, but our actual project delivery processes haven't caught up with that to say, well, what do we do with this information mm. when we have it? And to have the opportunity to say, well, we do have these really diverse views, we can incorporate more than one thing in this project. And I love Danielle's example where you can sit with very different views and often that will give you a huge breadth of richness to your project, but it'll also help to synthesise what are the common values that people um, are seeking from a project and also to be able to see those perspectives from each other's point of view and to say, well, okay, well, actually, I can see what you're thinking and I actually think that's a great idea too. And so that you've got a collective investment in that rather than, I guess, the public sort of receiving what someone else has told them they should be having and it's not necessarily going to be meeting their needs in the long term and it's so important that people come to a place after a project is finished and can see how they've been involved in it, how it meets their needs and know that they've had some agency I think in that um, as well. But yeah, we're not, 
our systems to be able to identify and capture and listen to those various voices are still, I think, in the process of, of evolving. And I think it also need, means having to have more diverse participation in the delivery of those projects too. Because, yeah, if you've got a very um, undiverse group of people designing that process, you're very unlikely to get um, a rich outcome from it. Just because, you know, I'm not supposed to be speaking, but here I am. <laughs> um, I think if we come back to your question, there's maybe one other thing that needs to be said in that there is an innate hierarchy in terms of engaging and listening to voices um, with respect to context. So you have, uh, if we're working here, um, it's been deemed Wurundjeri country. Um, there are other groups that have connections to this place through a long period of time. Um, and then there is a whole group of Indigenous people that live here. And so I was just trying to think of a way to sort of break it up, but you, the hierarchy is those of cultural authority have the say and they have the final word, and those are people that are the traditional custodians, so people that are of country, of this country. The next layer would be people that are connected to country, so that could be neighbouring um, groups, that could be people that live here that are Indigenous, it could be a really diverse group of people who, that are connected in some way to this place. And then the next layer would be those that are interconnected. So all the way across Australia, every Indigenous person is interconnected to this country in some way through songlines or through various other means um, of either personal or historical experience or even, you know, geology, representation, all of it. Um, and those are sort of the three layers that you would, if you had to classify it, how you would lens what someone is saying to you, which group they come from, how you then privilege that information, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree as well. There's, there's one complicating factor that we have government here <laughs> and, <laughs> and government um, non, uh, unfortunately have put in government bodies that now uh, from a government perspective represent Aboriginal people too. And they regularly at least in uh, New South Wales, don't agree or don't even recognise and definitely don't represent the local people. And so they'll say, well, there's no story here, there's no traditional owners here, there's no traditional custodians here, um, and, uh, and so we're the cultural authority. So that is a complicating factor. Um, it's it's never, never actually true, just to be clear. Even in the middle of, of Sydney, Gadigal lands, that's not true. Um, I'm, I, I probably will come unstuck with the local people there, local uh, uh, government body there, <laughs> but who disagree with what I'm saying. But I'm related to those people, so I do know that they exist. I know their heritage. I, you know, they tell me where they, where their belonging is. But what Sarah said is is actually in our circles. That's how we recognise it. And then the government circle is just another yes. And I hear them, I don't, but they are actually like outside of that other, the final circle that Sarah talked about or as part of that final circle that, you know, the connecting or interconnected parts. It's, um, it's complex, but it's also kind of not. They're the disconnected. <laughs> Sarah just said they're the disconnected. I didn't say that just for anyone who's listening. <laughs> no, look, my elders agree with you, Sarah. That's fine. They would be. Uh, they would actually say, "Why go back to your own country and sell that country off?" Is actually what they would say. <laughs> but I just wanted to put that in because they. It does when you are working on projects with 
um, uh, with mob. Um, we are navigating these complex spaces all the time and we can't always explain it to you, but this is one way you can help us to, to just by understanding those complications, really helps us. Hmm. And, um, and, and perhaps to give you some more context to the documents that are um, before you, um, is that UQ, we weren't talking about just one site. We were talking about the 43 sites that UQ operates, research centres, research facilities, um, campuses. Um, so uh, it became incredibly complex in terms of like ideally if you actually follow proper protocol, uh, you would talk to, uh, UQ has some alliances with the traditional owners where they're particularly politically active. So they've got a research facility, for example, on Kwandamuka country, which is very close uh, to Brisbane. Um, um, and, and so they have a great, um, and at some sometimes tense re working relationship with other members of the community who, um, you know, so I think these things are not really easy to navigate and that's why if they're navigated quite badly, they, they get derailed and then sort of, so then people want to bring back efficiency in it and, and, and exclude talking and, and consultation. Um, but I, I think... You know, I, I've been really incredibly... Um, I've watched different ways in which tr different traditional owner groups have want to engage with, with built infrastructure. And I know that from when it occurs in my country, and it's not necessarily been architectural, but it's been sort of uh, either uh, looking at traditional walking tracks and re-establishing them as 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 a part of a tourism sort of greater walks thing the way that we did that and managed that consultation process we asked the department of um, parks and wildlife services for queensland if we could take over dealing with traditional owners so that when um what what our old people wanted and what the community wanted was to be able to work on country and to to not uh, to have used the in, uh, Indigenous labour and talent, but also consult because there were sort of lots of things. They weren't just walking tracks. There were burial sites near those walking tracks. There's sacred sites. There's a whole range of things. And we had to do that. And, and there were ways in which the tracks had to avoid particular areas. There were sort of massacre sites that were close to traditional walking tracks. Um, so there were sort of lots of things... Um, you know, uh, pre-colonial and post-colonial to, to really navigate. And that really, we had to do that and talk to the old people. And we did that. Uh, and the old people actually through that process educated, um, educated my generation and educated younger people on how to sort of go about it pr uh, appropriately because colonisation and engagement with traditional owners has really fractured communities in, in, in very different ways. 
but the old people actually set a really amazing example on how they deal with neighbours and what is an appropriate way and, and what is an appropriate respect. And, and also um, younger people, I'm talking about when I'm, uh, my younger nieces and nephews are in their 20s and 30s, um, not really, really young. Um, but, you know, they, they learnt through that process of sitting down in meetings and seeing that consultation process because everybody knows what the appropriate thing is but not necessarily everybody had the knowledge of massacre sites and sacred sites and burial sites and um and and so it was in a really interesting process but what people wanted the old people didn't want to get out there and do the work themselves but they wanted to see that the work came back to the community and it wasn't sort of subcontracted out to non-indigenous people because they felt that even something like a walking track needed cultural sensitivity so i think it's when you really engage with traditional owners you actually find that their demands are really not that great. They're not impossible to deal with, but there is this perception that people are incredibly demanding and difficult, and it's because people actually are approaching the project and the process in the wrong way. Um, and I think that that process went very smoothly. We didn't go over time, over budget, um, and so I, I, I really, I really want to sort of... Uh, keep advancing examples. There's so many examples of when you do actually engage with people in, uh, in and Indigenous people and traditional owners in, of, of different countries. Um, you get a you get a really huge buy-in from the community, but also you get something that respects people's cultures and preservation. You know things that they want to they they don't want to open to the public or. Um, you know, so people are incredibly generous. Um, the old people were really generous because they wanted, um, they were asked for traditional names. And, and it's, you know, it's really quite interesting that there were, if you go on a walking track and it's, you know, uh, 20 kilometres, there were about 20 different names on that site. Like there isn't, there isn't a track. But when people were after a single name for a track, the old people went away and talked about it, and um, and and came to came to a decision, you know, about what was the appropriate name. It wasn't really a simple process, and you would think, oh no, just give us a name. Come on, think of one. Come on, come on, Mama Walking Track. You know, um, and it didn't really happen like that. People, you know, so I think that happens as well as work happens you know so there's ways that you can do that when you um so i i would love to see that sort of transferred to to more than you know to more and more context you know yeah 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 so i just i um had a question um that sort of stems i think from the conversation about um identity and diversity uh, within the community, and I, I mean, I, I hope it's appropriate to ask a question about curriculum um, and indigenizing curriculum. But I was wondering, maybe I, maybe I have it answered already in my head, but I would like to hear what you have to say. Um, is there any diversity in what it means to indigenize curriculum, or the ways that one might go about um, indigenizing curriculum? Um, because quite often in discussions of indigenizing or decolonizing curriculum, mm. um, I think 
many people are in agreement about what needs to happen uh, at a sort of a higher level, but whether when that's implemented in, uh, you know, whether, I don't know, whether there's some diversity in the ways that people understand what that means uh, or how it needs to be implemented or what needs to be done in order to, to do it. Um, mm. I was just curious, I guess. That's a great question. Um, I, uh, do you want to start, Danielle? Do you have anything to...? Um, I, probably there is. Um, I'd imagine Carol and I are working in very different ways across our two institutions that we're working in. Um, and the way... I mean, I try and start with where I am. And so maybe that's how it is diverse because where, you, where I am in terms of the... Um, you know, not here, but where, I, <laughs> where I'm indigenising curriculum, curriculising indigenum. <laughs> that's about as good as... That's about as mixed up as it is in my head as well. Um, uh, it, it's uh, it's uh, of Gadigal land, and um, so starting with that point is, for me, is really important because they are... That, that point, that place has um, has people who know it really well. It has stories that still exist there and it has, um, you know, a, a now a, a university that's sharing the sharing knowledge with a whole bunch of other people who come from a long way away usually. And so I, I that's how I've started. But, it, but I also want to know what's in the curriculum and nobody could tell me, so we've started mapping it. Mm -hmm. No, but it's like how can you indigenise the curriculum if you don't know what's in the curriculum? Mm. Like I, it was just a... Um, <laughs> anyway, um, mm -hmm. I know, I know. <laughs> That's all right. You're allowed to laugh at me as well. I'm sure I'm very funny. But I, I think that there's got to be multiple ways of doing it and it's got to be okay across multiple ways because we're, we're across multiple places with different people coming at it. Carol and I are from different parts of the world. We have been educated differently. So I think, you know... For me, yes, there's got to be multiple ways of doing it and it's okay. And um, I guess that also gives the opportunity for students to go, well, they're teaching it like this and they're teaching it like this and I like it like that. And so you can choose that university over that university as well because you are actually taking it from a different... I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but I think it gives you an opportunity to choose a different way of learning too. But, you know, if, we, if you really take it down to that, nu that nuance of place which I think is, a, you know, or of, or of country, every, every individual um, group, and sometimes those groups are relatively small around those, um, around country, they all have their own dialect, their own cultural expressions, their own starting points, their own starting stories, you know, the, the, how we started here. Um, from one group will say, we've always been here, and the next group will say, we came from the Western Desert or across the desert. And this, these are cousins saying the same thing. From And so even if you think of it like that, but they also have their own way of teaching and their own way of learning. And if you think of it like that, then of course it should have a, a diverse way of expressing too, in my mind. Yeah, and I guess um, decolonising really is... is it's a, it's a method, it's not a theory. So um, the methodology is something that can be nuanced to place as well. But um, I guess if I can give you, I always like 
pointing to the practical and um, example. So at UQ, um, I'm the only Indigenous staff member and there are lots of other staff who are very um, Indigenous competent in terms of their knowledge and they teach content and they do that in a very um, appropriate manner. I don't think we've got to the point where we're... Um, but I know that across the university, they're talking about indigenising the, the entire curriculum across the university, not in a forced sense, um, but in, in a sense where they, they can see sort of quite, you know, obvious synergies that have been absent um, um, or, uh, you know, so there are lots of examples at UQ where um, indigenous practices and traditional practices have actually then been translated into molecular sciences, you know, and, and information. And it's led to sort of the development of new materials, you know, from using nanoparticles and, and so forth at UQ. So it's really quite interesting that things that we don't think where an Indigenous thing has a, has a place actually is finding an emergence. Um, so, and that started with looking at um, spin effects, you know, um, and spin effects as a ubiquitous um, traditional material that's used for all sorts of things. Um, it's, it produces a resin um, that has different properties that were used traditionally and differently across the nation, uh, but also it was used as a thatching material um, in, in, in by desert sort of semi-arid conditions. Uh, it, it has great thermal properties, but also water repellent, a whole range of things, and that's the traditional sense architecture but then it's also been sort of uh, looking at to the properties of spin effects itself and so that's actually been taught in molecular biology at UQ which is really incredible but it has um, the indigenous component is also about where is that material from who are the uh, traditional owners for that country and if any of these things are developed and then creating research partnerships. These are all very sort of contemporary things, but Indigenous people saying, oh, you're doing all this really cool stuff. We'll actually bring that stuff back to our community too. We want to teach our community about that, but also if any industry develops from this, can we actually be a part of that? And this is what we want to do. And if any any of these new fab materials get invented, can we get a portion of that so that we can actually feed that back into the community so that we can actually have um, people who are traditionally perhaps even more excluded from the university just through being in a remote region, having different accesses and pressures on, on learning and so forth, have an opportunity and see a pathway to a university. So it's really like, you know, it, I think that's an example of where um, architecture can be sort of uh, situated because there's so many components of architecture. You mightn't think structural, uh, you know, structural, you know, tech has got anything to do with Indigenous people. Um, but sometimes, uh, you know, in the process of that sort of looking at spin effects, so we're talking about new new materials which could be have greater thermal property, could be mass produced. Um, um, 
it incorporated into new materials in architecture that were much more sustainable. And so they looked at propagating that um, material and could this then be sort of uh, reduce uh, the way that we're using timber in, in certain contexts or we're using uh, waterproofing materials. Could we use resin and then create that into a, a synthetic material that then has this new property? There's just like, you know, uh, um, architecture where we think something is going to be indigenised, but if you talk about that and incorporate that into the teaching um, as how research collaboration can, uh, can occur within architecture and in a university setting with Indigenous people, and that gets incorporated into teaching rather than sort of a, as an appendix and a footnote of, yes, we'd like to thank the Wallawara people for, for all of their assistance on this project. You know, I think this, it, it, there's a bigger story um, that can come from incorporating that into teaching because then it, it actually is that you're changing the processes without having everything sitting under the... What are we going to decolonise? And we're sort of looking at the obvious targets and the low-hanging fruit to do that. Um, but sometimes there's a lot of... Um, you know, and it goes to Danielle's point about, you know, mapping, mapping what you're currently doing, mapping what's currently happening across the nation, looking for gaps in, in your own direction and, um, and then finding opportunities to sort of incorporate something that really doesn't position Indigenous people as this um, Neanderthal sort of, you know, pre, um, prehistoric group that sort of did all this really you know, um, very non-modern, <laughs> um, had all these very non-modern behaviours of, of eating and getting things, you know, so from the environment. So, and it, and it sort of shifts it away from this romantic framing of Indigenous people as well. People are very, you know, Indigenous people in remote areas that I work with um, are very engaged with the modern economy and modern world, but they're also in really bizarre ways extremely isolated. Um, and they're not, they don't have access to the infrastructure and resources that communities of like sizes do that are closer to city locations. So there's, they're, they're in a really, um, but, but want to really engage, in, you know, and have some incredible knowledge. Um, but for them, you know, um, I'm, I'm working with, I've recently started working with the Ladle people um, on Mornington Island. And when I looked at um, some of the work that, that was produced from their art centre and how that's been sort of incorporated into storytelling, a lot of people, a lot of the stories that the people wanted to tell were to t talk about we've got this great culture, but also we've had this terrible trauma that's been introduced into our culture. And so there were lots of children's books that focus on talking about the massacres and what, what actually happened in the early 20th century. And, and I think it's important for us to know that Indigenous people still carry those stories. I certainly do. Um, you know, from my grandmother being a survivor of a massacre. So it's not... This is my mother's mother. <laughs> so it's not my great-grandmother, it's my mother's mother was a survivor um, of a very small number of Jittable people from her clan group 
of a massacre. So it's a, it's, it's a very recent history. So sometimes Indigenous people want that incorporated in, in a sense. And it's referred to as truth-telling because it's something that has been ideologically framed by governments, you know. So I think, it's, I think there's a big mix of what does it actually mean. Well, there's a whole range of things. Uh, it can sort of... It's at the interface of, well, the way that we teach history and theory and, and, and methods. Um, and, and also about how you value oral history as, an, as, a, as a teaching mechanism that comes into, you know, rather than peer-reviewed, um, <laughs> you know, articles. Uh, we know that there's been a huge history war in, in, in the nation that went on for over a decade about whether or not oral history has any truth to it. Um, but, you know, let's face it, uh, any any culture that speaks doesn't. There are multiple truths. <laughs> so so um, and and there's some certainly some really interesting research that gets that crosses over with architecture. And and we're talking at UQ now about really re-examining our history and theory subject. How do we incorporate um, indigenous? Uh, content into that. There's quite obvious synergies with, with design in the way that the studios operate. And when you, you know, not all studios um, are, are Australia-based. Sometimes they're competition-based and they're, 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 they're not necessarily on our land. But there's, there's certainly in a, a greater awareness amongst um, staff to really engage students. Like when you're talking about site, you don't start with, um, you know, the environmental <laughs> and, the, and the technical aspects of site, but you actually start with traditional owners. And I think it's just a way of en enriching that. I don't think we still quite know how to sort of really um, make good use of that information and engage. Um, teaching budgets are a huge issue um, because, you know, ideally if you would want to do this... Um, if you want to do projects, particularly if they're um, Indigenous, uh, you know, engaging projects where it's something that it's for or, or um, with or uh, on behalf of uh, an Indigenous community, you would want to incorporate them in a much... and, and uh, so that the students can really get a sense of, of practising so that it's not, you're not waiting until you graduate to actually have some contact... Uh, with Indigenous people and so we try to sort of push that at UQ um, and the challenge for us is is the budgets and, and sort of, you know, paying people appropriately um, because, you know, it's amazing, multi-million dollar universities really operate on the goodwill of a not only... Um, Indigenous people, but non-Indigenous. Anyone who <laughs> who know, <laughs> knows uh, it's an incredible amount of goodwill that comes from the architectural or la landscape architectural community that contribute to teaching and are really sort of under, um, you know, you know, paid for that. So it's it's really hard to fight for that to have that meaningfully incorporated. But I think um, there is ways that we can re jig our, our budgets if we start those conversations um, as we do now through what we're doing is looking at where are the opportunities that we've missed um, and where do we want to um, position ourselves as a university in the way that we're teaching um, 
and 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 I know from Indigenous people and Indigenous staff uh, at UQ, there's some really exciting things that are happening across other faculties as well. Architecture, strangely enough, is seen as a huge leader in this space just because we've had this consistent sort of um, engagement and dialogue with Indigenous people from uh, the 1970s, you know. So it's sort of... Um, but, you know, that those... You know, we're, we're not dealing in a 1970s way now. Um, we, we have to really contemporise it. So I think... Uh, I'm sorry I can't give you a quite specific answer, but, you know, to speak to the diversity, sometimes where we think there aren't opportunities, um, there are, and and also it really has to... Um, have to look at sort of, yeah, not putting Indigenous people in into sort of a box where it's always about country because people are using country in different ways and really quite exciting and new ways. Um, and if we look at... And, and, and it's up to each Indigenous group, if, you, if the university has that relationship and engages with them, for them to sort of find out. And sometimes they're often really, really surprised at what Indigenous people say back to them. And they were certainly in, surprised at um, the Wallyawara com, uh, community and Injiludji and, and so forth um, in Western Queensland, what they wanted out of that relationship. They didn't... You know, universities are very much used to transactional relationships with Indigenous people, and Indigenous people are OK with that, but, you know, they, they if you're after a transactional relationship, let's find out what we want from <laughs> in terms of our transaction. But, um, so, and, 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 and it, it actually really enriches these projects. It's not to say that they're, they're not tension-free, but, you know, I think if that gets incorporated into teaching so that we sort of see how diverse ways in which it can be taught. And, and I know country is a huge importance and a focus, but I know Indigenous people too are also strategically losing that in, in contemporary ways so that they can sort of, you know, further advance the needs of their own community to really engage with the outside world but on their terms so and that and architecture is a huge mediator of that I wanted to just add to that is there also a process too for making those curriculums a culturally safe or safer place to encourage more um, Aboriginal people to be participants within the profession <laughs> yes yes <laughs> Yeah, um, I think I think um, uh, I think the problem is that it's a sort of self-perpetuating cycle at the moment still, where we still have the hero architect so often, and um, those who tend to work in what are you laughing at me or with no, me? With <laughs> <you>. <laughs> um, those who tend to work in more collaborative ways don't get elevated still, um, and. Uh, unfortunately, that um, that self-perpetuates because we tend to generally, we being Aboriginal people, tend to generally work in more collaborative ways, generally, um, not all. Um, and so we don't always get seen in that, in those spaces. So to me, I think it, the <laughs> cultural safety is such a big thing as well where we are still learning how to speak up for our cultural safety at times. I was in a meeting on Friday 
where there was um, pretty major co uh, assault on somebody's identity. And um, because of the nature of the meeting, the person who should have said something didn't have the ability to say anything. So I had to just take the assault. Mm. It wasn't on my identity. It was on somebody who... Uh, an, an, another elder. Uh, I had to take the assault and apologise for somebody being offended when actually we'd been... We'd been working how we'd been told to work. So, um, so because the situation isn't set up yet for us to actually say, hang on a second, um, this isn't okay, uh, we still have to do things in a very formal way um, and it's still in that way where we still have the hero and um, who does the amazing architecture um, and the... and we're not heard in those spaces as much. Um, we also need more Carols and Danielles in schools of architecture to, to show that it can be um, women, can be um, people who are not just... Um, uh, not just... Uh, well, you know... <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? Um, white, white males who can be heroes that can, and that there can be others who can change, make changes in spaces, but it is very hard to get into that space. I've, I've fought and fought and fought to, to stay in an academic space because my, I've been told by, by my community I have to be part of the conversation, but, I, but it's hard and it's not welcoming and, it's, and, and you, you, it took me years to get into this situation. So, yes, the cultural safety things are really big and major issue. We had a big parlour talk about it not long ago, actually, and two, and I ranted at one. I'm still apologising for my ranting. <laughs> um, but, you know, cult it's actually such a big thing that, you know, if we're not able to work in our ways, we mould in this really awkward sort of situation and doesn't. it's not quite okay. And I'm, I'm saying this from, you know, recent experience where I did have to just cop... Uh, you know, that really un unsafe situation um, because we were in a very formal space that didn't mean I could say, look, actually, aren't what you're saying is, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think, I think sometimes it, 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 I'm still surprised how in the 21st century we're still seeing sort of, um, you know late 19th century and early 20th century um, methods of consultation, which is no consultation at all. And, and um, with all the knowledge and representation that we have, um, that somehow there's still this process. And I know um, I can sort of speak to this very similar example that occurred on, on our country where uh, a rainforest centre, originally they were going to centre it around Jitterbol people because there's, there's a, you know, obviously there's this huge awareness that international visitors want to actually, they know, they know um, that Australia has an Aboriginal, um, you know, traditional owners and so forth, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander traditionals, and they want to really engage with them in a very authentic and meaningful way. And somehow, El local councils or government agencies get sort of procure funds and have this process which entirely excludes Indigenous people. And, and, it, um, and then 
it creates these buildings that are disconnected. Um, but sometimes, you know, there are bad processes that can sort of be um, salvaged as well. And I've seen examples where there's been really bad, culturally insensitive, to cult ignoring um, local Indigenous people, creating a sort of a thing, and then actually an awakening occurring after this really terrible process and reincorporating Indigenous people and then them salvaging really um, what was really a very terrible process. So I'm, hope, I'm always hopeful. Um, I'm a bit concerned that, and, and I hope maybe the awareness occurs that, you know, you can't, you can't sort of have art that is from another region or an area as this sort of ubiquitous representation of, you know, desert art is a very quite distinctive style and it has a very distinctive history and origin. And, um, and you know, but that also speaks to that there is this... Um, there is this sort of cultural Indigenous art thing uh, that is occurring, which is not necessarily of country, and it's being contemporised and localised. It's a it's a, a very complex sort of uh, thing that gets incorporated into architecture as well. But I think yes, there's a there's a vibrant contemporary community, and I know that most urban communities have 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 really struggled with recognition um, because. Um, so-called traditional art or traditional stories and techniques have sort of totally mesmerised a particular audience as the only way to, you know, only cultural expression. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, that certainly occurred in Brisbane um, and it created some tensions uh, with contemporary Indigenous artists who weren't sort of doing, you know... Um, you know, what was considered Aboriginal art and were doing sort of much more political, politically engaging work. And I think that's definitely shifted and changed. And, it, and it's really... Um, and, and sometimes it comes to recognition outside of Australia first before you get sort of incorporated into your own, um, you know, uh, country and, and, and appreciate it. So I think... You know, it is it is a struggle, and I think it's a struggle that occurs within architecture, and architecture sometimes into you know intersects to, uh, with that in really sort of terrible ways. But I think, um, you know, I'm I'm saddened to hear that people don't feel like they have a voice and an opportunity to sort of um, speak up and um, about these incredibly terrible processes that are really disenfranchising. Um, the people who these so-called centres are supposed to represent and then they have their name on it, yeah. So... Sorry to interrupt. We've got about 20 minutes left, so I thought I'd try and um, rein us in, but perhaps we could go around um, for, in terms of contributing to the manifesto to garner some ideas. We've had, like, big yarns about um, what's missing from our education, clearly, because these processes are still happening. But maybe if everyone could contribute what they think needs to be in our curriculum or what things needs to be taught or what they wish they had known um, before now that will help us in terms of indigenising the curriculum and all the processes that we're going through. Yeah. <laughs> so we're tasking you with doing that, <laughs> contributing to our manifesto. Um, 
I think uh, just in terms of a, a summary as well, I think we've had a really quite interesting discussion. Um, although we, I think we started off with really just having some understanding of, um, I think definitely Indigenous cultural diversity as an incorporation rather than um, is, is something that clearly needs to be incorporated and it um, into the manifesto. So it's not the conflation of a singular identity or... Uh, Uh, yeah, not the conflation of a singular identity and and really understanding. I mean, you know, I, I feel sort of decolonization. I think there are lots of, um, although there are opportunities. Um, for lots of non-Indigenous people to contribute to that. And I think lots of my colleagues have made very, use, you know, very great con contributions to that. But I think it also, um, there needs to be uh, an opportunity of not trying to rest on a singular definition um, and allow for evolution of, of what that actually means as a method and in practice um, and its impact within the curriculum. Um, do you have any to add to that, Danielle? Mm. I guess it'd be good to, um, along that line, to understand how each of those, those diverse groups can be um, in their way engaged because I know across all of our three places that we work it's different and um, it's different from in in um, Melbourne Sydney and Brisbane and we've what are they the bit three biggest cities and all of the colonization happened you know in um, probably similar ways yet we still have diversity even in understanding in that and how I'm told to engage with um, the, the mob in Sydney is different to how I know Sarah's been told to engage and it sounds like how you have. So even understanding of um, engagement as a, as a process would be good, but how you can then make that specific to each group and understand it. Basic protocols are missing sometimes. <laughs> I was called a native when I was teaching not that long ago. That was pretty hard going. Um, so, I don't know, some basic language and protocols wouldn't hurt. Um, they're out there all over the place. Uh, and, and it's surprising that people don't know them by now, but I guess it's we're, we're constantly surprised because we're in that bubble of, of, being <laughs> of being together going, oh, we, need, we know we need to do things differently, but all these other people are out there who aren't in our bubbles. So maybe we should stop being surprised as well. <laughs> I'll go on. <laughs> One of the things I've been thinking about is how with our processes, a lot of which are quite fixed within our institutions, so governments and even, I guess, standardisation of curriculums across universities and schools, is how can tertiary design education but tertiary education generally really be a method for obviously giving people skills to go into the workforce and understand the processes that they'll encounter 
there, but also to give people a really rich experience of how things can be different. And I think creating that insight to say, well, maybe you weren't taught this at school or maybe you've come from overseas and this is something that's fundamental to you, understanding what that you will be on country when you come to this land and you need to have a basic understanding of what that means. It may mean that you don't accept a project where you don't have the right authority to be the person um, authorising that or create the space for someone who can. So I think that opportunity to, to learn the things that we don't know and to test other ways of working so that when you do come to the workforce, I think there's a lot of really fabulous recent graduates who've had great experiences who are now feeling more empowered as well to say, well, this is not the way that I've seen it work and um, to be able to bring that learning in, but a way to bring that across all of the, the courses potentially. So you're talking about smashing the system. <laughs> Can we write that down, smash the system? <laughs> Hopefully you weren't recording that bit because I didn't. <laughs> That's my husband um, who's um, <laughs> um, now in the crowd asking me how to smash the system. <laughs> I'll have a conversation later, darling. <laughs> I understand. I know. You know, I'm coming as well from a system that is... Mm. It's not giving up, but it's, it's disappointing and it's um, mm. frustrating because I've heard you every single time mm. these things happen to you and your colleagues. Mm. So. I think it's one small smash at a time though, isn't it? Like you can't smash it all in one go. Sometimes it's just one, one little... Trying to find the right lever. But it is, no, you're right, it is really frustrating and he does get to hear it more than anybody because I'm sitting there, there coming home every day going, because there's one thing after the other after the other and it's not the same thing every time. So you can't fix one thing and then the next thing's going to be fixed because it doesn't happen like that. But it, he's right, it's a... Um, the, it's a, I think, but I, the only thing I can think is it's a small lever and one. I, I always think if I've changed one mind or done one thing differently in every project um, and managed to smash that, then maybe I've smashed something. But this, maybe it's the same for curriculum and gradually. Because it wasn't the same when I was at uni. I didn't even... Like, when I first went to uni, I, they didn't even ask me if I was Aboriginal. Mm. Like, I didn't even get asked to identify. I just was one of the people there, <laughs> you know? Like, I, so now at least you get to identify and you get to learn about Indigenous... I'm pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> but, you know, like it's, it's like that's changed. It's, so maybe there's some, maybe it's just understanding the increment. <laughs> I think what I wish that I learnt more at uni was, I, I do a lot of consultation, not necessarily um, Indigenous consultation, but consultation and being given that platform and not really being taught about how to go about it properly and do being able to reach out and talk to the right people also starting as like a student um in in a place that's kind of quite has a, has had a system for a long time and just kind of as a recent graduate you just kind of don't say anything and go with what you've kind of been told to do kind of having that 
power to think, oh, actually, this is how to do it better and I've been taught this. And so that's something that I could bring forward and kind of try and change the system from the bottom up. That's something I wish I learned more about and would be good to integrate. I don't know if uni's changed since I've been there, but mm. that'd be good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Bye. You. Thank you. Um, so what I've taken away from today um, is like the yes, yes and yes. I think some of the questions that I was um, thinking about asking um, you know, you answered in these sort of ways, like yes, yes, and yes, and then a sort of hierarchy as well, like thinking about the complexity and, um, yeah, I guess being able to sort of directly apply that to some of the questions that I've been having over the last um, few years and just realising it doesn't need to be one way, it can be many ways and that's, that's totally okay and you should feel okay to propose that. Um, sometimes you don't feel like you know what you're doing so you're not allowed to propose anything and so just maybe being able to yeah reach out and ask um ask first I guess yeah um and then I think I really liked um some of the things that you talked about Carol about um sort of cont uh, contemporary ways of thinking about country um and yeah how how complex that is I guess as well um yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've had a, two days of complaining about institutions fetishising old white men, um, like as well as the whole life of it. I, oh my God, there's a lot of anger around right now. Um, I guess I'd be very interested in, in relation to the discussion we just had about how these really tightly integrate with discussions of professional ethics which take place already within, our, within curriculum or what they should do or they did when I was a student a very long time ago. Um, and, and then how are the institutions that govern our disciplines hold people to account against those ethics? So how is it reasonable for Peter Stutchbury to do that? And why does nobody call it out, as you say? And why would we expect that it's the Indigenous community that have to do that calling out? Where is the bodies that govern our profession? We either burn them to the ground or they fix themselves up. How do institutions hold people to account? Well, I think they have an obligation to and they bloody don't. Yeah. 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 They don't hold themselves to account. And I think that does go to a discussion about ethics. And ethics are, of course, also a thing that are under development, but it seems to be. Ethics are something which are, you know, not static or fixed either, but it seems to me a discussion around decolonisation, whatever, you know, ties in very closely into that question of professional ethics and mm. we need to talk about that. Do you want to say something? Well, I haven't seen in ages, but no. Um, <laughs> Well, I came out. I came late and I, out of context. I'm, I'm no architect. I'm no engineer, so I don't know much about it. But I believe, in terms of the curriculum that you're talking about, I think it's go back to the basics. I think understand country, know country, how to read country. I think those basic things, which I know, anyone is is hard to. But I think those concepts uh, will we will help to everyone. Thank you. Thanks, I think uh, for me, I'm quite interested in sort of this 
divorcing the idea of being an architect from the create from this creator or like this genius who's doing everything and reframing that for people as more facilitators and sort of agency givers facilitator is the wrong word uh, because I'm I know we're talking about engagement I'm I'm quite interested in the idea of um people being involved in the process of making as well right like so in my culture which is different continent we're involved in the process of decision making and then in the process of making and then the process of discourse afterwards but what colonization has has done to us is it's removed us from those processes so for example when you try and reform it within the current system um I'll give an example the South African constitutional court building so that's supposedly a very sort of progressive building in the way that it engages with the cultures of my place um but then when you start looking at the research when i start looking at it afterwards who's involved in the discourse that actually talks about that building and how do you start involving people who are not in a system that was deliberately made to exclude them um that's kind of what i'm interested like almost reframe the whole thing and i actually think like the protocols that you were talking about i'm licensed that was not in my licensing exams why is that how can you operate as a registered architect in this in this country without at least understanding that there are protocols you may not know the protocols will change in different places but yeah. i think that should be a basic thing that's part of our education um i would advocate for that not just at a university level but especially at a licensing level because we have a lot of very dangerous people out there making things that are very damaging beyond and i think it's just as damaging as not having things that apply uh not having a um building code um you know building code passing buildings so sorry i could go on and on and on but <laughs> i i don't have any of the answers but i think i feel like we're very deficient in a lot of ways because of the way we think and we're not going to be able to solve that by using the system that we have now and I, i'd like to question everything um i don't know Um I guess I have a question. Um is the manifesto a manifesto for architectural practice? Um and does it include history and theory as part of its remit? Um The intent of the manifesto is to bring up barriers and opportunities for the for the built environment practice, which is every practice not just architecture and every um discipline within the context of architecture including history and theory. So it we're not limiting it. All of these things contribute to the education of young people who are coming up and will be the next generation of built environment practitioners, so they're all important. Um but it's also then by extension about practice. It's about every stage. Hmm. Okay. So I'm I'm an architectural historian. Um I don't know what to say. But I think that, you know, I think one of the things that has struck me uh the most today uh is about um I think the need to sort of pay attention to the diversity of voices uh that are um uh you know, maybe available uh and upon which one can base an indigenized curriculum. Uh quite a bit of what I've I've looked at and I've researched about indigenizing curriculum typically 
will have some structure that one is supposed to go through um, in order to then arrive at sort of a decolonized course or something like that. Um, but um, it seems to me that there is maybe a tension there between prescribing something um, and then not allowing, you know, it's somehow there, there could be conflict in giving a way to do something. I don't know how to articulate this, but giving a way to do something and not allowing for the diversity of ways to do something to, to take effect or to have effect or to be able to be acted on or something like that. Um, and so, you know, in a way I almost imagine I don't know if it would be an anti-modernist manifesto. It would be a very different manifesto than one would find in modernist architecture, but it could be like a, almost an anti-modernity manifesto, right? Um, all of these modern processes that have uh, relegated so many voices to the periphery, um, you know, uh, and trying to somehow come up with a way to forcefully in, engage, um, you know, uh, with the diversity of voices that are actually out there, um, you know, within... I mean, within a manifesto, I, you know, I mean, a manifesto has a big history of the way that they are written and the things that they say and how they say them. And so, you know, engaging with a manifesto is very difficult uh, in itself. But if there's a way to break that down and, you know, engage it within the system in which it lives in, which seems to me to be a lot of the point about decolonizing and indigenizing, um, it's not necessarily about doing away with the system, although in many ways, I feel like that should be done. Um, but uh, it's something about bringing them together um, in a way that, uh, you know, is maybe productive. Um, you know, I'm not hearing much talk about, oh, well, okay, I mean, there's been burning the system down, but maybe, that, maybe that's <laughs> enough talk. Uh, but, there's, you know, there's, there's text in the, texts in the U.S. that are very, um, uh, very influential at the moment. Um, one particular is uh, decolonizing is not a metaphor. Right, and so it's about rematriation of the land and of country and uh, things like that. And so, sort of everything that's done, not towards that effect, is perhaps not doing enough. You know, um, but I don't know. I haven't heard that so much in in the discussions about writing a manifesto for a curriculum within an institute of higher education. Um, it, it seems to be maybe you know maybe it gets there. I don't know. But, um, you know, yeah. Um, I think I've found every time I've come into a circle like this, such a positive space that has, you know, a yarning circle where there's a kind of everyone has a voice and it comes from a way of being that I think is really important. And I've found actually I'm relatively new into the teaching space and I've found that the students, and I'm relatively new back from the UK and coming back to an Australia that's different. The conversation is different from when I left it 20 years ago, which is so refreshing, but you also realise how how far it's got to go. And I think that there's... I've found that the students are really asking for something and that idea of smashing the system can come from maybe lots of different places. The student... It, the system isn't working for them and like it's their future that we're thinking about you know it's 50 years from now they've got whole ideas across lots of different ways in which life will be and I think involving them in the conversation together in this kind of sense of not just hierarchy um, and in order to listen to different voices you need to change 
you know, as, as educators and as the system within education, that, you know, there is something from professors who have ideas, but there's also ideas coming from other places. And that's really struck me. It struck me in this conversation. If you want to smash a system, you smash it from all levels, not just from above. Um, and another thing that I, you know, I think it kind of echoes a conversation I've had with people a little bit about um, uh, th this emphasis we have in architecture upon the object and not on the process. And I have been struck by architects who talk about process and, really, and it's often women. There's a generosity to how things, spaces are created to do it. We don't, we don't, uh, it's never assessed, it's never part of a kind of teaching process that we think around a process. You know, it's the object at the end that is assessed. Never the kind of way you've gone about doing it, the kind of ethics of it is just not judged. And we've got these very short processes of, you know, design process that spits something out. Professional practice is something separate from it, and it's not. I think it's actually how we practice is really important. And that is part of the process. And so again, this thing about the object, the hero object of a particular project that's not mentioned, <laughs> that's brought in, you know? And, and it's celebration of that, that was pre-decided because there's an object that was going to answer questions, not a process. And it's just so endemic and so much stuff. Um, and I found it, you know, I spoke to a big architect, a female, very significant international architect, and I said, it's about process. And she said, no, it's about object. And I was like, um, anyway, but I think it's everywhere. There's such a big opportunity that's missed in terms of what the outcome of it can be is that the amount of social capital that can be built regardless of what you end up with. You may not even build a building or, you know, you may not complete a structure or anything, but the social capital that you build through the shared experience of going on that journey to say, what is the problem that we're here to solve? And maybe there's a completely different way of doing it. Maybe it's not a building, but it's, maybe it's new relationships that are built and economic prosperity that comes out of that or even just people feeling that they've had a say in something that really impacts them. And I think that's what's not talked about enough in our profession is that there are so many people doing this kind of work, but it's not the stuff that the public sees. It's not talked about enough in you know, the literature and th there's so many conversations that are happening about it, but I don't think they're necessarily mainstream um, ones that you know, the, the bigger public um, really is, is getting into and understanding what role they can play. Um, I, I've really enjoyed this creative discussion we've had today and there's been lots and lots of um, fantastic comments. But I must say I really love your idea of um, that part of your registration as an architect would involve um, demonstrating an understanding and of protocols of working with Indigenous Australians. So um, I second that idea. It won't be Oh, that's good. Really? It's coming? Hooray. We just need all the project managers and everybody else involved to have the same It's, it's a new experience. idea to me. So it's, um, you know, whoever, wherever it comes from, it sounds awesome. Um, I feel like I agree with so much that's been said already, but um, just to continue adding, I think, Carol, what you were saying around time continuously kind of that really does strike a chord from you know, programming this place to being an architect. I'm sure that, that kind of filters through so many different systems of how we think or want or, you know, 
the information that we, we want to work with and it is exactly, I guess, what you're saying, Kate, about the um, process rather than this end project and if that takes time, mm. then give it that time. Mm. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, may, may be hard to monetize or to kind of write in some ways, but I think it is a really good um, thing to always be really conscious of. Um, and I think also, Sarah, I really enjoyed the way in which you described talking about um, kind of voices of, of the authority voices, connected voices and um, interconnected voices of who you should be looking to, particularly with this site and, and kind of how this um, boundary has changed and, and what that means for um, someone who's non-Indigenous working on it. Um, I found that clarity to really help, although I appreciate, Danielle, as you're saying, there is so much complexity within those, um, within those um, namings and, um, and, and groups. So that was my takeaway. And I've spoken too much today. Um, there's one other issue that I find with the way that, and I think you spoke about it, Carol, in, uh, I think it was a parlor lecture, a little bit, quite a bit extensively, actually. I think the way the current knowledge systems works, work that are acceptable within institutions, you have to have a written thing that was like written by so-and-so and it has to follow, follow certain protocol. And that doesn't respect the fact that within different cultures, there are different protocols that are already existing. And I think there's something that needs to be taught to students. So I don't have to, like, for example, when I was doing, explaining that there was an issue with the way African Australians live in this city. I then have to pull up the act that was written in 1902 and reference the specific section for something that I know as, or something that someone else knows from their feeling. Why can't their feeling be taken for fact? And the reality is that has a lot to do with education level. So like my feeling as someone who's educated is gonna be taken more seriously than someone who isn't. And how do we start as architects through the institutions, beginning to democratize the process of whose facts are documented um, and taken seriously. So I think that, I don't know how you put that in a manifesto. I don't even know what you do with that, but, but the reality is when we think about a lot of, um, a lot of first peoples, like you said, they're not in the universities, they're not in the institutions. So how do we, start to actually acknowledge what they, what, what they are telling us without um, making them go through our, jump through our hoops, so to speak. I have to run off Sorry. to a meeting that <laughs> runs for 10 minutes inside Jen's car. Um, <laughs> slash the M Pavilion van. It is unavoidable. I'm sorry, very sorry. sorry. Um, but Jen will keep recording and I love you. <laughs> Thank you. I actually wanted to add to that because um, it's actually, it was a big thing in my PhD, exactly that question of uh, how am I going to record these people who've never been recorded like this? And I, um, and I, I spent ages wondering and thinking about it and I ended up writing two literature reviews and it's a whole other story. But it's actually a thing as well in, in our profession, not just in research but in our profession, of, 
of um, that this knowledge is more valuable than this knowledge because this knowledge was written down. But what it, what's not understood about this knowledge is it was written down by specific people who had the capacity and the power to write it down. And it doesn't mean that it's more important, it's just that it was written down because it was of the person. And it, and it, it, um, it's a constant challenge for us, at least for in, in my practice, because um, we're being told by the authorities that there are no local communities, no local traditional custodians here or knowledge holders to speak. And therefore we shouldn't, therefore we, um, there's no stories and therefore um, there's, you know, they, they're the cultural authority. Um, when we know that's, that that's not the case and that we should refer to these white records. When we know that's not the case, and even, so even our own communities are doing it a bit. Um, they're not necessarily within the community. They're sort of supposed to represent the community, but they don't completely, just to be really clear. They're supposed to represent it, but they actually represent those who they accept in as members. And so th it's that hierarchies just keep continually playing over and over where, where this one is better than this one because this one could have this power. And then, so the power thing is just the constant thing. But it, uh, the way that I dealt with it in my PhD was I just assumed all, it was all equal and I, I wrote um, I wrote some I wrote some down for some people, and I and I acknowledged the crap out of it. Like I I acknowledged it in when I wrote their name, and I acknowledged who they were, and then I wrote it in the footnotes, and then I wrote it, and then I wrote, I created a whole new referencing system to acknowledge them again. So I did it in a way that they got acknowledged that in the best way that I possibly could in that structure. It wasn't ideal, and I added, I don't know, thousands of extra words doing that to my PhD, but it was essentially my way of um, coping and managing that exact question. Daniel, sorry. Yes. I don't you know have to you... speak into the microphone. Ah, sorry. I, I don't know if it's relevant or important. I don't know if you already told the people here about the Elda in Lismore about the church. Yeah, I don't know if no, you. I, didn't mention that. I don't know if it's yeah. related to adding to that that you are just saying. This is just a very short story. You all know that um, there were big floods in northern New South Wales recently. My family live up there, and I was we were just there yesterday with um, my family. Our fa farm's been really. I can't even tell you the damage because I can't describe it. It's it's and there's no help for us. Just so you know, <laughs> there's no help. Um, like we, I have to work out how to find $120,000 to build a new road. Basically, that's the that's that's the only thing that we've come down to because um, we're not primary producers. Just whinging because I don't have. Any, this is the only time I'll hold a, hold a microphone to be able to say that stuff. Um, but what we heard was that while they were building Lismore, which isn't is uh, nearby to our farm. Um, while they were building the church on the, that's on a hill in Lismore, an old, an old blackfella came up and said, oh, you shouldn't build your church there because um, it floods. And they were all like, and they built the church there anyway. And I don't know if you've looked at photos of Lismore, but you can see that church flooded now or was flooded. And it just shows like that, that oral way of recording wasn't good enough because even though that guy, maybe he'd seen it, maybe his elders or his old people or 
his stories, it was recorded, but he knew that it flooded there. And it does. And I've and like we've seen in, uh, we do sort of all sorts of research through, across a whole, all sorts of ways and we saw um, floods recorded in um, the Sydney area in the um, late 1700s. And the, um, I'm trying to remember the numbers. Um, the, there was rubbish in the trees that was 20 metres high basically. And so that, that was a flood that was 20 metres high in the late 1700s. And that, that was recorded by non-Indigenous people on a map, but they still don't, didn't believe that and put houses all the way through there as well. So, and in Gundagai as well, Prince of Yudhagoth, same story, they built Gundagai in the floodplain. And during a big flood, two Aboriginal men saved 150 yes. white settlers. Yes, that's right. There's a, there's a statue to those guys now at least, but... It's extraordinary, though. We and that's not maybe a conversation for a future black architecture, but about you know how are we making the decisions about how we how we build? Are we going to rebuild Lismore? Are we really going to rebuild Lismore? And and I mean, as a I grew up up there. I went to university there. Like you know, partially. Like I, it's a it's a big question that we actually have to start addressing, and we can't ignore those sorts of oral stories that go alongside the white recordings because the white recordings aren't long enough. One in a hundred years isn't true, I don't think. Anymore. No. Anymore. May not have been true in the first place. Mm. One in a thousand definitely isn't. I mean, Lismore's had two in five years. Okay, well, that was a good note to end on, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, next on... I've got to <laughs> Next on Black Architecture. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>